It's, it's good to be here with you again, and uh, today I'm going to share with you from another psalm. There are 150 of them, so I could stay with you a long time. <laughs> There's a gospel song that goes, Jesus is all I need. Jesus is all I need. And I, I certainly think that is a wonderful confession of faith. Now, if we paraphrased it like this, how would it ring in our minds? How would it ring in our, our lives? If this were the par- paraphrase, Jesus is all I want. Jesus is all I want. See the difference. What I'm aiming to do here in the sermon is to help us see this plateau of faith as the psalmist phrases it in verse 25 of the psalm. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. And what I want to say in this sermon, I'll just say it right off, Our Christian life should be a movement upward from Jesus is all I need to Jesus is all I want. If we could think of the Christian life on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, this is a 10. Let me say that I'm not talking about the needs and wants of our lives. We all have those. They are necessary considerations. We have to go to the grocery store. We have to work to earn our living. We have to care for our families and vote in the next election and fulfill all our our responsibilities. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what the psalmist is talking about when he says that there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's what, what he is writing about is the supreme need of our lives. The one thing that puts our minds at ease, the one relationship that we cannot live without, the single relationship that will change our lives. Jesus told a parable about the merchant. The, he was a jewelry merchant going around looking for good bargains and good jewelry. And he went out in the field and found a pearl. The King James says, calls it a pearl of great price. And he sold everything he had and bought that pearl. That's what our psalmist is talking about. If we could speak of our Christian life on a scale of 1 to 10, then the writer of Psalm 73 would get a 10. That's precisely where he has come to in his relationship to God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. We're talking about bottom line theology here. Now, I want to explain why uh, what may strike you as a puzzling sermon title Surely, surely, surely. It sounds redundant. It's not. Uh, Often the Psalms 
with the Psalms, the, the literary structure of the Psalm will be our key to understanding what the Psalmist is saying. And this is certainly the case with Psalm 73. In fact, the Psalm is punctuated by three little words, the same word, three occurrences of the adverb surely. In, in Hebrew, it's just the word ach. It occurs three times. Now, when I was doing the sermon, I, I, thought, I, I generally use ESV, and I got through almost through the sermon, and I thought, I should have used NIV. If you're using NIV, then you see this in the translation. You see it in verse 1, verse 13, and verse 18. Surely. And ESV is not as, is not as good. Uh, ESV translates it truly, verse 1, and truly, verse 18. But verse 13, ESV doesn't translate it at all. So, so much for our translation. The sense is really the same, though, whether you say truly or surely. My preference is the NIV in this case. The point is that this word repeated three times in the psalm are the pegs on which our psalmist hangs his meaning. It's a beautiful structure and one that we need to, to see as we study the psalm. The first occurs in verse 1, and we might call it the surely of faith's affirmation. That's verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a confession. It's a confession of God's goodness. Now, we have to remember that the psalmist has gone through a spiritual crisis, which is the second part of the psalm, verses 4 through 15, details his spiritual crisis. And he wrote the poem after the crisis. So he begins with the crisis, he begins with what the crisis had led him to conclude, surely God is good to Israel. The crisis was one that involved around, or revolved around the question, is God just? That's a spiritual struggle for most of us at some point in our lives. During our year in Germany, Rhonda and I were there on sabbatical in 92 to 93. We met a Jewish professor at Phillips University in Marburg, a survivor of the Holocaust. And he said, he said to us, I don't believe in God. And if there is a God, I don't want to have anything to do with him. When this professor was asked whether God is just, he came out at a different place than the psalmist. The psalmist had had his troubles too. But he had come out of a place where he could say, True, surely God is good to Israel. Our commentator, our commentator, one commentator has said that this first surely revolves around not justice per se, but around the question is God just? If God is good, then God is just. But the question still arises, is God just? 
That is, if God is not just, then we have to look for ways to placate him. We have to look for tricks to get him to do the right thing for us. To say it another way, if there is not some kind of justice behind this God-made universe, then whom can we trust? One of the quandaries of every Christian-minded Christian, every serious-minded Christian, and every Christian era is this. How can our faith survive in this evil world? This is for one of those eras that is particularly a challenge to us Christians. That question is particularly pertinent in this present time because the statisticians tell us that there are fewer Christians in the Western world than there have been for centuries. And perhaps some of us have even been affected by this culture of skepticism. And we need to renew our own faith in the goodness of God. That's what this world is desperate to know, that God is good, that he has our best interests at heart, and that stands at the heart of the gospel. God is love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, there were two alternatives for our psalmist. That is, two ways of dealing with the problem. Is God just? Or is God good? One was to talk about it. In verse 15, he said, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would, betr- I would have betrayed your children. He was concerned about his generation. That is, if that's the way the psalmist had handled the problem, it might have become too big for a solution. Sometimes we talk too much about the problem and too little about the solution. I became very much aware of this issue, this dilemma, in the early days of my college classroom teaching, which lasted for 40 years. I didn't want my students to come out of my classes knowing all of the problems raised about the Bible, but having no clue about what the solutions were. So I tried my course, in my courses to clarify the problem, make, make them understand what the problem is, even look at it from various angles as if it is one that is true, and then I attempted to provide some solutions. I believe this is one of the problems of higher education today, especially in the liberal arts. The problems often get blown up so big that we conclude there are no solutions that fit. That was the first alternative the psalmist had, to talk about the problem. The second alternative was for the psalmist was to look for a a resolution to the problem in his relationship with God. And I I think that it's so interesting that now we come to the second surely, verse 13, which NIV doesn't translate. 
I mean, ESV doesn't translate. And he says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands clean. You notice that word twice? In vain. I have, I've, I've, in vain I've kept my heart pure. He's lived a good life, but it doesn't seem to have produced much. He uh, has kept his hands innocent, but it doesn't seem to have produced much. Call it doubt if you like. This is the surety of faith's uncertainty. Or you might call it the surety of faith's doubt, if we can put those two terms together. Most every one of us have had those moments when we felt uncertain about biblical miracles. Or the that Jesus is the only way to God, or about the life hereafter. Doubts are going to be a challenge for us from time to time. That's a given. And those are the times when we need to fall on our knees and cry out, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you ever wondered if your efforts to keep the faith, to live the faith, were pointless? The psalmist raises this doubt after he has given us a description of the wicked in verses 4 through 12. They lived carefree lives. They had all they needed and more. They had calloused hearts. They found it easy to scoff and criticize. And they were even cynical about God. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? Verse 11. They didn't think God knew what was going on in the world, and probably they didn't care. Indeed, the psalmist looked at them, and interestingly, he became a bit envious. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's not wrong it's not wrong to wonder, to ask questions. In fact I think it's probably more wrong not to ask questions. Questions about those things that are really meaningful in our faith. It's the sin of sloth sometimes when we do not deal with the big questions of life. Jesus commanded us to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. I like the the way Moses talked to God when God was contemplating destroying Israel and raising up a great nation from Moses. Moses says, he's talking to God. Then the Egyptians will hear it, hear about it. For thou dost bring up this people in thy might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants inhabitants of this land, because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land, which he swore to give them. Therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. Moses was operating under the assumption that God was a reasonable God. Now, it was not just an intellectual thing with the psalmist. It was an emotional thing, too. 
Verse 2, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had something that he wished he had. Probably most of us have never felt oppressed because our neighbors had a bigger house than we do or drove a luxury car when we drove a cheaper model or went on lavish vacations and showed us all their pictures when they came home. But we've had our moments when envy crept into our souls, especially when we saw those people who live so badly and have so much. And we wondered whether they acquired it honestly. We see it in the paper every day. We've had our moments when our health issues and those of our loved ones seemed unfair in light of those who seem to care nothing for God and for his church. And they just have the best of health. We wondered whether it was worth all the going to church we've done, paying our tithes, trying to have a good life, live a good life. The bottom line of this query is the psalmist's question, is God really just? Or does he play favorites? And blesses some people indiscriminately, whether they are good or bad. Does God try to force standards of morality on us that he himself does not observe? And this is where the third surely comes into play. Verse 18. We might call it the surely of faith's confidence. Surely you place them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. And there are really two prongs to this surely. The first is the confidence that God will deal with the wicked. You put them on slippery ground and they're going to come across that place where they're going to they're going to fall and go to ruin. He's talking about the wicked and he's declaring that God is indeed just. We may not always understand his justice, but we know that he is the ultimate reality. Whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire beside you. I recently was asked to do a Zoom lecture to a class in uh, an institution where I had taught previously. And they wanted me to speak on the justice, on justice in the Psalms. And I, I, I attempted to say to them that we do not always understand how God imposes his justice on us personally or socially. But we do know that his justice is not always equal. That is, I may not get the same blessing that someone else gets, but there, there is going to be a time when it's all be leveled out. And I tried to say that to these students, don't apologize when you have to say, this system of justice that we see in the world is not the last word. The last word will come when God himself uh, equals it all out. And that, 
maybe the life to come. Now, the second prong is uh, one that I, I want to emphasize, and that is that he tells us that this, this prosperity of the wicked really troubled him until he came into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He doesn't tell us more than that, but something happened when he was worshiping God. That suggests that it was in his relationship to the Lord that the problem was resolved. Or perhaps it was there that he learned to live with the problem. Sometimes that's the resolution we have to settle on. It was in his relationship with the Lord that the problem had lost its force in his life. It no no longer troubled him. He got a vision of who God is. A vision of God who is everything. A vision of God who is the ultimate reality. Whom have I in heaven but you? A vision of God beyond whom there is no desire and earth has nothing I desire beside you. This is where Jesus is all I need and Jesus is all I want come together. They're not two unrelated sentences. They are complementary. Jesus is all I need And he wants to bring us to the place where we can say, Jesus is all I want. That's the summit of faith's mountain. The point when we look at over the landscape of our world that we've traveled through and we see how God has guided us with his counsel, how he has held us by his right hand, and how he will take us into glory. More and more, if I, as I study the Psalms, Psalm seventy-three twenty-five has become the motto of my faith. If I can just come to that place that I can say, Jesus is all I need, and Jesus is all I want. Our goal as Christians, the summit of the mountain of faith, is to come to that place where our need becomes synonymous with our want. It's the final effect of faith. When we truly love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Derek Kidner is is an uh, English commentator on the Psalms that I really admire. And he takes a long stride when he studies Psalm 73. He takes a long stride into the New Testament and finds a parallel between God's actions on the psalmist's behalf and God's actions on humanity's behalf in Jesus Christ. He finds it in Psalm, he finds it in Romans 8.30. He draws the parallel between the three verbs of verses 23 and 24, the verb hold, guide, and receive. Here is Paul's statement in verse 29. For those God knew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And here's the verse in verses 23 through 24 of our psalm where he uses those uh, similar, three similar verbs. And he, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. This is Romans 8.30. Those he justified, he also glorified. And when you look at these three verbs, held up against the three verbs in the psalm, hold, guide, and receive, it does make you think that Paul is talking about the same kind of relationship we have to God and what God is doing for us it's it's really the gospel in summary. This leads us to the marvelous insight that Jesus is all we need. And the psalmist's need has become synonymous with his desire. Jesus is all I need, and Jesus is all I want. Well, we can learn something from our children when they are on the trip with us and they're asking too frequently for our our comfort. Are we there yet? We all are at different mile postings on our journey. Perhaps the question is not so much, are we there yet? But the question is, are we moving in the right direction? It's both the destination and the journey that we need to be concerned about. The journey is Jesus is all I need. And the destination is Jesus is all I want. Let us pray. O Lord and God, we confess that this is not an easy journey for us. There are many frustrations some doubts lying along the road. There are so many instances when we look at our neighbors and those around us who have had successes that we never even dreamed about, have perhaps no potential for, but there has entered into our hearts a bit of envy. Uh, envy. We pray that you will cure us of our envy and may we stride to that place in faith where we can say that you are all I need and you are all I want. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.